We'll start part two of our series, Visual, Visual Kabbalah, Jews, Christians, and, the, and Kabbalistic Tree at the Dawn of Modernity. Please join me in re-welcoming our one-month scholar, Yossi Chayas. Thank you, Ari. We're going to do it. We're, we're going to do it. That includes questions, too, right? At the risk of... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, thanks, thank, thank you all for coming back again and again. Um, and um, I did get a bit of feedback after last week's lecture and have tried to make a few adjustments this week and additions, actually, to try and clarify a few things that may have just been not sufficiently fleshed out in our first meeting. And of course, I highly recommend that you you make this a tag, kind of a tag team um, educational experience by attending the Thursday evening Kabbalah introduction as well, because it is difficult to do an introduction to Kabbalah with the introduction to visual Kabbalah, sort of doubles the amount of heavy lifting. So uh, that's why some basic concepts aren't being fully fleshed out in this context. Um, I'm not giving the whole history and I'm not going into detail perhaps about things like uh, the, the term Sfirot and what have you. Also the Kabbalah 101 course is uh, on one foot as it were, an option. And I'll re do some version of that this coming Shabbat morning as well, without a PowerPoint. So here we go. Uh, this is more or less where we left off last week and just uh, I thought it was an interesting point that we we reached perhaps a bit surprising this is still a quotation from Moses Cordovero that preeminent Kabbalist of the 16th century and Spath who asks towards the end of his discussion of the correct visualization of the structure the, of of the divine realm, kind of the, the, you know, the DNA of the divine. What's that double helix really look like? So after giving the various options for what that structure might look like, he says, well, like, what's it all about? And part of his answer to his own question is to stress the fact that there's a, there's a continuity, a structural continuity that exists in the cosmos, in creation, that applies both to the divine realm and to the sort of cosmic, we might call it the astronomical realm. The structure of the physical universe is the same as the structure of the spiritual universe, we could say, just to keep it simple. And the way he describes it in this way is the point of the earth is in the middle of the sky, so to speak, and that's firmament surrounds the earth and causes everything that happens under heaven according to the divine will. As is well known among scientists that the movement of the spheres is the cause of the compounding of the elements. And he, uh, it doesn't sound like a, a very direct answer to the question of why do we imagine that the divine world has this structure, but he basically sees the whole cosmos as a, a, a kind of never-ending scale of 
being or chain of being with circles nested within circles nested within circles and all these circles are spinning and as they spin they're compounding the elements in the lower realm but everything that happens in the world is a result of the spinning spheres, the rotating spheres, the heavenly spheres and then the planetary spheres and finally our own planet. So they're all basically operating on the same principle. The other thing that's really I think very worth bearing in mind is that in a pre-modern worldview, and I'm talking about a worldview shared by the top scientists you've ever heard of through the 17th century, the, 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 this, the um, realm that we live in is quite unique in the, so far as that it contains inanimate matter. The four elements, as chemists until the chemical revolution understood physics, right, that there were four elements, they are inanimate. But everything above them, which was understood as everything above the lunar sphere in pre-modern <coughs> cosmology, scientific cosmology, everything above the lunar sphere is a, on a kind of scale of divine. It's uh, not the lower realms aren't as purely divine is the higher, but they're all alive and conscious in ways that would be very surprising to us now when we think about, you know, we look into space and we see it. It's like, and we think of all of space as basically inanimate. But when they looked into space, they thought that they were seeing into the realm of the divine, gradually becoming more and more divine the higher you get. So this is a statement that Aristotle probably would have felt quite comfortable making that Maimonides made. My, the same Maimonides who people always say is the arch-rationalist of the Jewish tradition. All stars and spheres possess a soul, knowledge, and intellect. They are alive and stand in recognition of the one who spoke and thus brought the world into being. So space is alive. Space is divine. It's not... I, I, I put this out there because it makes it just a little bit easier to understand why until the modern age, it was relatively easy to imagine that if you just got past the moon, everything was already part of that divine realm that gradually and hierarchically was getting more and more rarefied as you got close to the emanating source of being. But it's, it's a scale and it's, and it's continuous and it has a, it has a common structure. Now this is a, a very old diagram. This one is from the 13th century, the little inset. One is a copy from the 16th century. This, I think it's very interesting to see how they have set this up to illustrate the correspondences that they believe exist in the various important realms that one would want to show correspondences within. You have the top uh, channel, the top column, listing the names of the ten spherot and associating them with ten concentric rings. You have the two o'clock um, uh, what? Yeah, this column, yeah, the two o'clock column that has the ten commandments 
corresponding to the 10 spherot. You have this, let's call it a four-clock column that's listing the 10 utterances of the divine mentioned in the beginning of Genesis. God said, let there be light. God said so and so forth. So these are the 10 creative speech acts. You have the 10 o'clock column naming the 10 planetary bodies going, but of course they don't just include the planets. It starts with the moon, but then it goes to, um, it's a little bit hard for me to read it, but in any case, you, I, Mercury and Venus and, and the Sun and Mars and Jupiter uh, mentions the, the um, sphere of the, of the intellect, which is a kind of philosophical concept, 10 major body parts at the uh, 8 o'clock column here, and then just, it says literally 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 in this 6 o'clock <laughs> column, I guess the 10, 10, the 10, yes. This is from the 13th century? Um, the one that I've enlarged is from 1552. This is a 13th century manuscript that says the same thing a bit less artfully. They have a round earth. Well, um, they presume that the structure, that, that, that's of course true, not only round but spherical. There was no one uh, who ever studied astronomy uh, in the Hel Hel um, Hellenistic world in antiquity or subsequently in uh, Greco-Arabic science and subsequently in Latin Europe who ever thought the earth was flat. That's a modern urban myth that is used as a way of defaming the intelligence of the medievals, but everybody, everybody knew that the earth was not Thomas only Cleveland round, but spherical. Invented the flat earth, no, I mean, yeah, yeah, right, very good. Yeah, so, um, yes, the earth is indeed flat. Now here, uh, what I would just say quickly is that this is, um, I think, not meant to be an expression of what reality looks like, per se, as if you remember from last week, I was trying to show you how Cordovero thinks it's important to know this, that sort of DNA double helix, helix of the spherotic world. He wants to know what the reality is. What does the divine structure actually look like? Whereas in a diagram like this, they're not trying to show you a reality, they're trying to use a diagrammatic form to expose correspondences because those correspondences are a, a, a way for you to see that there's meaning that's built into this, to, to the universe, that it's not random, but that in fact there is this, one of the ways that we can talk about the correspondences that exist in our world is by saying there are a series of tens that are very important and that connect to each other, and a diagram like this exposes those connections. Now, the very same connections between the Ten Commandments, the Ten Spherot, the Ten Super Cool Body Parts, the Ten Creative Speech Acts, all of that stuff, yes? What were the favorite body parts? Favorite, yeah, well, let's take a poll. The number one favorite Jewish body part is the brain. Okay, not if you listen to Mel Brooks' 2013-year-old man, you'll see there's some question about the favorite Jewish body part, but. Yes, it goes on from there. Uh, it's a, again, it's a bit blurry, but I have a hard time reading this one. This says the tongue, the right arm, the left arm, 
the spinal cord, the right thigh, the left thigh, the penis, and having a hard for me to see that. Yes, I guess it just depends which Jew you ask. But um, what I wanted to say was <laughs> the heart. Oh, you know what? I'm sure the heart must be in there. Uh, doesn't look like it. Yeah. Oh, you think it'll be better there? Yossi will disrobe. I'll figure it out. I've got all these places tattooed. <laughs> You'll see. Um, I'll do some homework for you. But what, <laughs> what the point I wanted to make was simply that this is a bit subtle, but you could present the same correspondences, all of this data, so to speak, could be presented in a simple table. They had tables in the 13th century, just like we have tables today. They work exactly the same way. When you take information that could be represented in a simple table, and, and you change the schematic form that you're using to present that data, you're also making a statement and with the form that you've chosen to present the data. And so my, my subtle point here is that rather than just give us a table saying that commandment number one corresponds to body part number one, corresponds to sphira number one, they have embedded this information in concentric circles that culminate, as you correctly pointed out, in the earth in its central place in that geocentric view of the cosmos. So in other words, the organizing principle that they want to impress upon people is that even though, even though these correspondences aren't exactly part of the structure of reality itself, they sort of are. <laughs> and, the, and the overriding structure of the whole thing is that cosmic one that's, that's based on the geocentric Ptolemaic view of the cosmos as a series of rings or sometimes compared to the skins of an onion, but that that's the real shape of reality, these spheres. I mentioned also that uh, people, the etymology of the term is contested, and Gershom Scholem, who's shown here in a particularly amusing picture from his <laughs> youth, uh, insisted that if you, whatever you say about the sphero, don't say that they're from the Greek word sphere, um, which of course is what I just, which I, what I just said in my most recent article, but. Uh, it's, it's beyond an etymological point because every Kabbalist writing is familiar with this term sphere in, the, in, in its Greek forms and understand very well that there's a very deep connection between the concept of the spheres <coughs> astronomically, cosmologically, and the Kabbalistic notion of the sphero. They just know that it, there has to be a connection. Yeah? So this is the same time as Galileo. Ah, well... The, um, a lot of the stuff that I'm showing you, that's, uh, well, Galileo is a yeah. little bit later, right? Yeah, but what is 17th century? I showed you just now 15th century. Ah, 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 you mean the, oh, the, the Mary, yeah, you're right, there was one from 1550s. Yeah, more or less. Yeah, more or less. Now, it takes 
to, this, the, you had Ru, Ru, David Ruderman here already, so I probably needn't go too deeply into this question, but the, the, how Jews, how quickly the Jews <coughs> adapted to basically what would be uh, uh, the revolution associated most, promin most prominently with Copernicus is an interesting question. Um, but we don't see in Kabbalistic writing a, a real about face, even after you have indications that some rabbis already in the 16th century are not especially disturbed by Copernicus. The Jews tend to n neither oppose it too much nor make much of it. They don't rewrite their whole symbolic systems because of the switch to heliocentrism. Listen, what can I tell you? Uh, the Jews have more difficulty with the chemical revolution introducing additional elements to the periodic table than they do with the Copernican revolution. As the heliocentrism doesn't screw up as much Jewish symbolic, doesn't ruin as many divrei Torah, let's just say. You know, what are you going to do on Pesach when somebody says, four isn't so special anymore. There are actually five elements. Now there are 10 elements. Now there are 20 elements. Now there are 112 elements. That's a problem. But saying the sun's in the middle doesn't really matter. So um, yeah, th this is taken from um, a 16th century printing of uh, a book that just shows really nicely how you have a, a representation of, of the system. You have the spherot shown. In, in the top, it says, you know, the crown of emanation and so forth up to here. And then it, then it says, no, oh, this is where the created world begins. And this is the angelic realm. And this is the realm of the planetary orbs. And this is, the, this is where the four elements come in, the material elements. And this central earth ring is where the element of earth is predominant. So just you see it's a chain of being and it's <coughs> continuous and it's in that perfect spherical shape and last week I already showed you that this was a favorite way of Kabbalists going back to the 13th century to visualize the spheroid and even using their initials. Today it's very popular. The Bar Ilan has its Kabbalah program name. Yes, Rashad. It does look like a labyrinth. There's, I know, don't know of anyone who's tried to use that as a figure for a labyrinth. And th well, there is actually a guy named Daniel Stein Koken who's been working on labyrinths in this period. And they're often associated with Jericho. And you see them in, in, in illuminated Bibles where the Jericho story is told. And people are very much aware of labyrinths in this period. And it, it's... It's a good, it's a good uh, uh, observation, but I don't know of any source that actually s presents that as an example of a labyrinth. Um, so, yeah, this is just yet another statement of the very same principle, that it's emanation is just like the spheres, they're like onion layers, they're called firmaments. These, this, is, this is the idea. Again, the idea of the, this is sort of a recap of last week as well, the tree of life based in terms of its 
uh, formal structure based on the porphyrian trees that were extremely common in a wide range of scientific literatures in the 12th century when the Jews started using uh, this diagrammatic form. Um, and other very popular ways of visualizing concepts also you see incorporated by Jews in the 12th and 13th centuries. The image above basically shows the spherot in terms of a, another very widespread diagrammatic form in the Middle Ages called the square of opposition where you could put terms in, these, in this configuration and say like that this opposes this and this opposes this but this is sort of like a you, you can express all these relationships in terms of opposition, and so, yes? Yeah, that's right. It does work some, in some ways like that. Yeah, very much so. These are non-Jewish. This is Jewish, though. This is Jewish, but it's based on... It's just, these are, in, in the scientific literature of the Middle Ages, everybody who's writing a treatise on logic uses squares of opposition. Everybody who's writing on on the nature of being is using these classificatory diagrams of, in arboreal forms. If you're doing a genealogy, you're using a tree, uh, like the tree of Jesse, showing Jesus's genealogy that's in every church in Europe. Th these are, it's like today, our Venn diagrams or pie charts. This is just what you see when you look at any example of learned culture in that period. So they're everywhere and, and Jews are participating in that science. They're not simply passive. They're participating very actively in the translation and adaptation of scientific literature from Arabic into Latin. So not hugely surprising that they're going to absorb some of this. And this I also showed you. I want to actually get beyond it before I get into trouble here, as I have a tendency to do. Um, I want to also say a word about the uses of Ilanot. This, I'm sort of pushing this up a little bit in the series, just because I think it's, it's too important to, to leave it for the end. And that is, when you, when you get past the stage of individual diagrams in books and get to the point where you're getting those parchments that I mentioned last week, the scrolls, the long, the larger, the larger pieces that can be one, two, three, four, five yards long, like big maps that combine lots of diagrams of different sorts to create a whole virtual reality map of the divine realm and all of the s sequences of the emanatory process. Um, so like how would you, so I think it's already somebody last week asked, well how do you use something like that? I think that was one of the last questions that came up last week. How do you use a big parchment scroll that's covered with map-like inscriptions of diagrams and texts and well, what, are they, what is it for? How do you use it? Right. So, uh, yeah. The bottom line was not translated to English. Yeah, that, that's why I have it right here. You see, look. So. <clears throat> That was just a preview for the is, is Israelis, for the Hebrew phones. Um, I like this, this. This is a text that I took out of um, 
a relatively late artifact, and it's included in the printed version that came out in Warsaw in 1863 or 1864. And I'll go through each one of these and I'll make them a little bit bigger, but basically it's saying that the, the people who made this rather late scroll introduce it by saying, let me tell you what it's for. Which is nice, because they don't always tell you what it's for. Usually they assume you know what it's for, so it's nice to get, get a, a manuscript that tells you at the, at the beginning how one would use this. So it has five things that it mentions. Besides this general introduction that it's by Mayor Poppers. Mayor Poppers is responsible for this map of the divine world. Mayor Poppers may not be a household name today, but he was quite famous in his day in the 16th century. He was actually um, 17th century, sorry. Um, he was responsible for editing the works of Chaim Vital that would ultimately be sold in bookstores today as the writings, the collected works of Isaac Luria. The Kidvei Ha'ari, the, the, the famous book of Luriana Kabbalah is called Etz Chaim, the Tree of Life. Now, Etz Chaim, I can't get into the d details of it, but book Popper's edited that. He's the one who created the work that became canonized as the most important work of Luriana Kabbalah. And he's the one who was credited with being the, uh, the, the, the Kabbalist to, who first drafted the complex scroll that would ultimately be the first thing printed by Jews from this genre in 1864, I think. And, and so and that's very important because if you think uh, the pictures are weird and that Jews should not really be publishing uh, visualizations of the divine realm, then it's somewhat reassuring to know, even if it's a false attribution, that the person responsible for this picture, this visualization of the divine realm, is also the person responsible for giving you Etz Chaim, the most authoritative canonical work of Luriana Kabbalah. So it's like a, that's, that's a good source, a reliable source. It's not, they're saying it's not put out by some suspicious, underground, heretical Kabbalists, but by one of the great mainstream architects of latter-day Kabbalah, as it were. What's the point of it? One, to become acquainted with the wisdom, Chokhmah, which we learned last week is also a synonym for science in this literature. To be a memorial, which I argue means it's to be used mnemonically. So you use these diagrams and images to help you remember Lurianic Kabbalah's cosmology. The third one, to enable one to ascend the ladder whose head reaches the sky. Meditative, contemplative ascent through the study and engagement with this map. Every map in pre-modern times is looked at as an opportunity for exploring the like virtual reality that's in the map, right? This is something that's weird for us and I'm throwing it out there as a huge generalization that I basically feel is legitimate to, to make. Again, maps, pre-modern maps are what we would call today virtual reality uh, <clears throat> media. And when you have a map in your home of the Holy Land and you contemplate it, you are visiting, you're making a virtual 
pilgrimage to the land of Israel, when you have a map of the divine realm and you scroll through it and can contemplate it, you are on a voyage to the divine realm. Um, it includes all the writings of the Ari. That also shows us that part of the reason for making these <coughs> artifacts was to, to create a prasi, a kind of a Reader's Digest version of those 20 volumes of Luriana Kabbalah that you can buy in the shop and read, you know, how <laughs> the Talmud of uh, Luriana Kabbalah, or you can contemplate this map that tries to integrate and, and, and um, synthesize it all. So, um, okay, I just go through them to use mnemonically, contemplatively, uh, as a summary of a very vast corpus. The last thing that you, that you see only on the printed version is that they also work as amulets. And I mean, I have like a whole lecture just on the magical side of this material, which I'm not putting into the series, but it's, this is something that comes out mostly in the late 19th century, that, that non, I would say non-Kabbalistic reuse of these materials as amulets. Now, an amulet isn't the only kind of magic. There are other kinds of magic that are maybe a bit more subtle than saying if you buy this and, and uh, keep it in your house, you'll be safe from this, that, and the other thing. Like for maybe people here have heard of Raziel HaMalach, that people were buying since the beginning of the 18th century to protect their homes from fires. Many people here who have like uh, old Eastern European grandparents or something may remember that they're in their home was a copy of Raziel HaMalach. Nobody? No glimmers of recognition here? Different Eastern European grandparents than my, my usual. So that was just a pamphlet or a book? It's a book. It's a book that was published in 1701 in Amsterdam and republished countless times. And today in Hebrew bookstores and in holy bookstores, you might say, we don't have them here, but LA. In LA, I'm sure you can get them, and they, and they often reprint them nowadays in pocket-sized editions that are printed so small you couldn't possibly read them, but they're not printed to be read. They're printed as amulets. And it said in the, on the frontispiece in 1701, if you want to protect your home from fires, make sure you have a copy of this book. Don't read it, but hold, you know, buy it. There are amulets, too, that one puts in a... Crib, a That's right. The Lilith, usually the anti-Lilith yeah. amulets. Those are part of Raziel and Malach. You see those three weird-looking angelic birds that F.A.O. Schwartz off offered as stuffed animals a few years ago. I'm sure Mark Michael Epstein showed you pictures because he was the first to order those F.A.O. Schwartz stuffed animals. <laughs> you can believe it. Um, a red string is... Not from Raziel Malach, but also used as an amulet. Yeah, yes, for sure. This is just to show you, this is the amulets that are produced from the late 19th century on will usually downsize the scroll and then add typical formulas at the beginning or the end to tell the person how they should be used. And they will, uh, they're often, um, they're often, often include instructions to keep them in a pure silver container worn on the neck of the person who needs protection. 
I even have a slide here in lieu of a whole presentation on an original Kabbalistic scroll that becomes the basis for the late 19th century magical amulet redeployment. And you see how it, it gets downsized and of course this whole accompanying discussion of the meaning of the diagrammatic presentation is simply excised from the amulet version because you don't need an explanation. No, you know, the demons that you're trying to keep away are not interested in that. And this, is not, this isn't the effective part. The active ingredients are all the images. So you can see it gets progressively so down. Well, th none of them are dated manuscripts, but, but uh, the, my presumption is that uh, there, was, there, were, there were a couple of scribes in North Africa who specialized in churning these out. Because if you go, and, and the, they were in the second half of the 19th century particularly active, um, perhaps also in Jerusalem, uh, but it's a relatively late development, the use of these images as amulets. Um, okay, so now that I have about 15 minutes of my 45 to talk about Jews and Christians, now that you know a little bit more about the general background, so you've seen that we have these two, well, speaking of the tree in particular, these two images show you uh, once again the affinities. The left one, by the way, I showed you for a second. Hold on, no, go back. Excuse me. Uh, yes. Uh, if you just go back one. Back here? No, no, the one you just showed. But, but no. I put this. No. Then this. I just want to say about this, though, that this is a Christian Latin translation of a 13th century Jewish Kabbalistic introductory work called Gates of Light, Sha'are Ora, published in Latin in the early 16th century, and um, is, is a good way of just opening up this, this discussion of how interested Christians were in Kabbalah in general and in the Kabbalistic tree, which, which uh, of course is our focus here. This is the one that uh, I was showing you before, the concentric model of the spherot, which I superimpose a little bit here. You can see with a typical view of the concentric spheres of the... Those, that's what I keep talking about. Keter, Chokhmah, Bina. Are you weren't here last week? Oh, those are the, just the first initials of each of the ten spherot. That's all. They're all hidden. Sorry, yeah, I forgot. Um, something that you see later on is a bit more, uh, once you get into Lurianic Kabbalah, the, the amount of anthropomorphism in the visual material grows. One of the reasons is because in addition to using this form of the tree and the circles, in Lurianic Kabbalah there's a very big emphasis put on the primordial atom, a kind of new character emphasized in Kabbalah of the Lurianic period. This is from the 16th century on. And that is a very, uh, you could say perhaps in a very direct way that I told you before and 
various contexts, that for the Kabbalists, the true God is very similar to the philosophical concept of God, infinite, transcendental, unknowable, nothing with a capital N, right? Um, right, Ein Sof, or just Ein, nothing with a capital right? So, but there isn't much to say about that God with a, nothing with a capital N. So what, who, who's responsible for this? <laughs> who's responsible for, the, for creation, the world? Where did it all come from? Right, so the Sfirot model was a, one way of talking about God's interface with creation, interface becoming creation itself, emanation. Another way was to say that the very first thing, so to speak, created by this God who's utterly unknowable was a kind of anthropomorphic expression known as the primordial Adam or Adam Kadmon. So that the, 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 the most, it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting, it means that the highest expression of the divine that is still not nothing, <laughs> has a kind of human form. And because of, because of this concept, I think, we see more and more images of Adam Kadmon, of this primordial Adam, and especially the face of the primordial Adam in visualizations of Kabbalah from, let's say, more or less about the year 1600 and going forward more and more faces. And that's, if you thought, I already showed you some stuff that was borderline heretical. You gotta fasten your seatbelts because when it gets uh, anthropomorphic, it goes to town. This, now let's back up first and make sure that we, we remember we're talking now at least for 15 minutes, right? Talking about Jews and Christians and Christian interest in this. Christians were very happy with this 10 wrote, as I told you last week already, they had the, three trinities in there, I mean, plus one. That's, that's like a, you know, just a gold mine, right? So many threes. Um, they love that, but uh, you can imagine how they will want to go to town on the primordial atom. Who is that? Well, that, that? That's somebody we can use. One of the important things to remember about the Christian interest in Kabbalah is that it's rarely Torah lishma, as we say in the Jewish community, Torah interest for its own sake. It's usually until the 17th century, with an exception I'll mention, it's Christians want to show Jews that according to the Kabbalah, Christianity is correct, according to their own teachings. Now, the, the, and, and most Jews in this period will agree that Kabbalah is the deepest teaching that the Jewish people have. And the, the Christians will want to say, as they had said already for a long time about the Bible, you have the Bible, but you don't understand what it says, <laughs> right? So they got tired after a thousand years. Okay, okay, let's forget the Bible. What else can we show them? The Talmud, the Talmud had problem, problems of its own. They also tried sometimes to show Jews that the Talmud was a good source for proving Christianity, but that was more difficult. Kabbalah, they thought, okay, now, we're, now we've got some material to work with. So we see Christians being interested in it from the get-go. You have some quite interesting things, a Syriac New Testament printed in Vienna in the 1550s by Johann Albrecht Wittenstetter, 
that includes this incredible image of Jesus on the cross with his um, different passion pains associated with different spherot and a lot of really fascinating imagery, the cosmic sphere, menorah, the, the zodiac is visible here. There's a lot of interesting iconography going on here that I don't have time to explore, but this is still basically simple. It's 10, e 10 equals 10, it's Trinitarian and so forth. On the right, you can see something that was created by a Robert Flood a little bit later. John Dee does some similar things. You, um, if, I, if I get this a little closer, you can see that in this Kabbalistic tree, the top sphira of Keter is translated crown into Latin is corona, um, right? And Ehye, the divine name Aleph He Yud He from last week's Torah portion, right, is up there with Pater, right, the Father. And there you see Elohim, right, Bina, and Spiritus Sanctus, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Ghost, right, and here. Chochma Ya Yud Vav Filius, right? The Ben, the Son. Uh -huh. So they're really going to town. Um, this was great as long as Kabbalah stayed fairly simple. I don't think many converts were one, although there were very interesting uh, projects created, especially in the 16th century, by people very high up in the church in Rome to. Uh, to study Kabbalah for themselves, a lot of translation projects, ca uh, getting Kabbalistic works into Latin. Um, but to, to, to whatever extent, all I think it's fair to say in the hopes of training priests to be better capable of converting Jews by knowing more about Kabbalah. And because they honestly believed, this is not only... Um, insincere manipulation, right? They honestly believed that Kabbalah was, a, was the ultimate profound teaching that even antedated Moses. It's the core revelation shared by all peoples. The Jews accidentally happened to be carrying around historically, but that there's value in it for them, right, as well. They don't, it's, but again, the, this rather simple system works until you get to Luriana Kabbalah when things get a lot more complicated. Um, and as I like to say about Luriana Kabbalah, nobody, nobody, knows, nobody knows what it says, right? This is a good, this is a good uh, image of the bulletin board, of the, of the bulletin board, what do you call it? Of the blackboard, you remember blackboards? Um, so we know, I don't know if you recognize this image. From Sith, a serious man, a serious oh, man. Okay. And why do I, I use this image because I can't, I can't stop thinking about the scene where he has the student who comes in after the physics lecture and says, he finds out that he got a bad grade on the exam and he says to his professor, but I understand he had told that the professor had used um, Schrodinger's cat in the lecture to talk about a, phys a physics idea and and his professor says to him, oh, okay, well, you know, what can I do? You didn't, you, you, did, you didn't do well on the exam. You don't get the math. And the student says, well, I get it. I get the cat. I get, 
the cat's alive, the cat's also dead. I get the cat. I understand the cat. And, and the professor says, okay, but the, cat, the cat's just a story. The math is, the, you get graded on the math. So I would say about Luriana Kabbalah, you can go, you can get a lot of books, uh, Introduction to Kabbalah, they'll tell you the story of the cat. There are a lot of stories people tell about Luriana Kabbalah, but if you start actually cracking open the books of Luriana Kabbalah, you'll see that it's very hard to even find those stories. Like find 10 books on Luriana Kabbalah in English, you'll only find these stories. And then open one book of Luriana Kabbalah and I dare you to find a story. You can't find it, because it's all math. So nobody knows what the hell this is, which is why people tell the stories, because they can't do anything with this math. But there was one Christian guy who actually went into the math and thought it was valuable and tried to work on it. I want to talk about him for a few minutes today, and we only have a few minutes left, but this is an extraordinary 17th century story. And it was a guy with hair like that, an incredible, incredible wig collection, undoubtedly, <laughs> His name was Christian Knorr von Rosenroth. <laughs> Christian Knorr von Rosenroth. That's the man, my hero. He was this incredible scholar, really quite a daunting figure, who trained himself in all the languages and then dove in headfirst to this Kabbalah stuff and translated from Aramaic and Hebrew into Latin an entire range of literature. Like a, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a full body course on Kabbalah for people who, can, who are limited, can only read Latin for things, right? They can't deal with the original <coughs> Hebrew and Aramaic, and they can only read it in Latin. So he provided it, I would say, way over a thousand pages of material translated word for word, and I've checked a lot of it, because I'm very interested to see whether when things get a bit weird, if he translates things so that the Christian readers won't get too upset. Sometimes the Kabbalah says things about non-Jews that aren't so politically correct. So was he faithful to the text, or was he trying to make it sound nice to his readers? The guy's really quite an honest worker, and he wrote this book called Kabbalah Denudata. I think I briefly mentioned it in another context. You see Lady Wisdom there, really trying to show his readers that there's true wisdom in this tradition that reinforces doctrines of the New Testament. What's really interesting, though, about this evolution of Christian interest in Kabbalah is that it is part of an attempt to, that isn't just about Jews becoming Christians, but rather uh, a, an attempt to, to carve out a space where Jews and Christians might agree on something that was not exactly what either of them would, would, would look at as, a famili as familiar. Like each group was being asked to accept something that was out of their comfort zone. So I'll give you an example of that. Um, so on the one hand, you have the people who are pushing for this kind of new, proto-new age syncretism, we could call it. Uh, in saying, Christians saying, um, in this imagined dialogue to a rabbi, a Christian saying to a rabbi, 
you have Adam Kadmon, please acknowledge that's what we call Christ. And, and, but if you do, then I also have to. Right? Now, you, if you'll agree that Christ is a name for Adam Kadmon, I'll agree that Adam Kadmon is a name for Christ. And all the stuff that Isaac Luria has cooked up in his imagination about Adam Kadmon, that's about Christ. But it's not what Christians are used to when they talk about Christ either. Okay? So, oh wait, here's a little Jesus. Let me get that. Hold on. So, now Henry Moore, who you may have heard of, is one of the most uh, famous of the Cambridge Platonists, the 17th century uh, English philosophers, took real interest in this movement, was in constant communication with uh, these sort of syncretistic figures who were active mostly in Germany in the late 17th century. And he at some point, and Isaac Newton as well actually, both eventually recoiled in disgust from the syncretistic um, movement. This is Henry Moore's letter of resignation from the group of, of devotees of this new Jewish Christian integrated neo-Kabbalistic uh, community. He says, the apportioning of the true and first Adam who is called prior to all first things into brains, cranium, eyes, ears, nose, etc. is a much crasser imagination than anything about the true notion of divine things. This probably would make a little more sense if I had given more of an introduction or if the lectures worked out so that you'd heard more about Luriana Kabbalah. That's the next one. That's this Thursday night's session where I talk about going from eros to anatomy. This is a reflection on the fact that the Kabbalah that Henry Moore, the Cambridge Platonist, read in Latin translations of Luriana Kabbalah struck him as extremely crass because they treat God anatomically rather than when I say erotically, I mean in terms of eros, like the object of desire, of passion, of wanting to be close to God, of wanting to allow for God's grace to enter one's life and all of that. No, the Kabbalists are like, no, let me tell you about how, the, how God's eyes shine with this kind of light and God's ears flow with this kind of spirit and so forth. That very technical anatomical approach to the structure of God was foreign to his Christian sensibilities. He didn't like it. He checked out. Um, and now I'm officially, officially over time. So what would be a good thing to leave you with? A little bit more, just to show you this. This is a, this is a, a, a nice piece of evidence for. Christian interest in the tree. It's a piece of it's a letter that I found in a library in Germany in this little town called Wolfenbüttel, or Wolfenbüttel, um, and it's very, some very famous churchmen of the era, uh, in correspondence with one another, uh, in which one explains to the other that the most important doctrine of the Jews is the Kabbalistic tree, but that 
Nobody has ever been able to really get to the bottom of it until this one brave, heroic man, Christian Knorr van Rosenroth, set himself to do it, and he has gotten to the bottom of this great secret that until now was impenetrable by non-Jews, and that's the Kabbalistic tree. And just a little show and tell, this I took in Munich just this past summer. Part of the, one of the projects devoted to translating, or not just, not tr this one is not part of the translation project. This is part of a copying project for a library that was, was to be established in, in Germany by a prince who thought it appropriate to have the greatest works of world culture in his library, and he had a scriptorium set up in Venice where he hired Jewish scribes to copy Kabbalistic works for his great library. And, uh, the, and, the, and the family who, did, who was paying for all of this, they couldn't read Hebrew, they couldn't read Aramaic, so occasionally you find just little winks to them. What was the wink given, the thank you, so to speak, they'll open the manuscript and see something that makes sense to them, the Kabbalistic tree at the front of the manuscript that has Latin translations of the Sphero that made it something that they could relate to. This is another example of a beautiful manuscript that's in the Bodleian at Oxford, based on a Jewish original, but copied amazingly. You see when you get to the, this is called the colophon on the manuscript, where the person who has copied it signs his name. It says, copied by Notzri, Christian, who copied this, and his name is Yaakov Hevron, Jacob Hevron. And then it says in Hebrew, Ascoti. I don't know if you understand that Hebrew, right? Christian <laughs> Jacob Hevronis from a Scotsman who is responsible for this. Who is this Jacob Hevron? Turns out he's a, a Christian Hebraist from Scotland named James Hepburn. James Hepburn. Here's some other, this is another piece of religious art he's responsible for. It's, the, it's a work that has all of, the, all of the names of God that's focused on the Virgin Mary. And you see even has, for those of you who can appreciate the Hebrew, Kulech Yafa Rayati V'mum Einbach from the Song of Songs, you're beautiful, my beloved, there's no blemish upon you. And <coughs> this is fantastic work. He has a, there's much more. Uh, and now, since I'm seven and a half minutes late, I will just end by sharing with you one of the real surprising finds of my own research on the diagrams published by Knorr von Rosenroth in his book, Kabbalah de Nudata. He published, as part of this encyclopedic introduction to Kabbalah for the educated Christian reader in Latin, 16 fold-out diagrams fold-out pages that reproduce largely, I should say, largely reproduce the Lurianic scrolls that with, I think, a lot of hard work one might have been able to find in the 1660s, 1670s in Central Europe. This guy found them and worked with an engraver. You saw the beautiful engraving from the frontispiece of Lady Wisdom. That same engraver worked with him to create versions of these Kabbalistic scrolls 
broken into fr 16 frames, each of which was sewn into the printed volumes as a fold-out uh, diagram. So, for example, the first, this is uh, in the background <coughs> an engraving version of um, the face of the primordial Adam with eyes, nose, mouth, beard, neck, and so forth. A lot of the, well, pretty much everything in here from a textual point of view is translated into Latin on the facing page. Um, you can see there a little bit more clearly the Latin translations. One of the cool things to appreciate too is that um, if you look at the, somebody who didn't know Kabbalah and Luriana Kabbalah would look at this, this image that has uh, only the placement of the words suggesting the different parts of a human face and they might think, well, okay, I guess, how do you read that face? Do you read it from top to bottom? Is it, does it go like hair, forehead, eyebrows, eyes, nose, mouth? Or like, how does one deal with this face? And when you check the Latin, which is numbered, those numbers don't correspond to anything written as a number on the diagram. But when I place those numbers and found them in the diagram, you can see from that little trick that I just did on the PowerPoint that he's skipping all over the place, right? That turns out to be the correct order of emanation. That is the correct sequence that is articulated in the heavy lifting Lurianic works. That's the math, right? He, he, get, he gets it. He knows how to present it. So his Latin readers are actually going to follow that diagram as much as they possibly can in an order that shows real familiarity with the material. Um, the last thing I want to show from this collection is that when he gets to the eighth figure, he says, I really want, in my language, I really want to talk about a concept called the divine garment. That's part of a sub-school of Luriana Kabbalah, the Sarukian school, it's called. And according to this school, the, uh, the primordial stuff of creation was woven from the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It sort of harks back to what we were learning about Sefer Yetzirah on previous occasions, that Aleph and Bet, Aleph and Gimel, Aleph and Dalet, Aleph and Hay, you know, combining all those letters, and that becomes the the, the weave of creation, this warp. Yes, warp and the weft. Yes, as many times as I Google that, I will not remember it. Um, he says I wanted to present this, but I didn't find a I didn't find a an image of it. In so many words, he says. So I made it myself. Here's a Christian Kabbalist who's decided didn't find a Jewish Kabbalistic visualization of this doctrine, so he makes it himself. And he puts it out there in five diagrams. If I had another hour and a half, I could explain the five diagrams. They also work in a very interesting way. They kind of like zoom in, which is unusual for Jewish diagrammatic presentations of emanation, to say rather than just going like a ladder, you're going down the rabbit hole, as it were. You're sort of zooming into, into the different levels of emanation 
by going deeper and deeper through the hole. So this is what he came up with. Then I noticed, whatever, my, my big find on this point was that within a very short span of time, Jews started using the diagrams that were created by this Christian in Jewish scrolls presenting the sequence of creation. So um, it's quite interesting. A book published in 1648 in Frankfurt by a Rabbi Naftali Bachrach called The Valley of the King, Emekamelech, sets out the doctrine with a little bit of visuals. We know that Knorr relies upon this work to create his visualization of this notion of the divine garment at the font of reality. And then we see that Jews begin subsequently creating adaptations of the figures that were in Knorr's Latin published work until uh, the published version of Warsaw in 1864 that was attributed to Mayor Poppers, the canonical, the, the, the man responsible for the canonical presentation of Luriana Kabbalah, was actually not written by Poppers, but was written by Christian Knorr von Rosenroth. So the, so the most authoritative presentation of this doctrine in Jewish Kabbalah is based on the visualization of a Christian sitting in Sulzbach Rosenberg in Bavaria in the 1670s. Um, there's, of course, more to say, but I think this would be a good place as I, I think now we've gone pretty much to the hour. And I will end here. And, uh, okay, would you take a few quick questions? And we'll wrap it up. Yes, Rochelle. Mm -hmm. these, could, these could as well be continuums, um, which, which gets us to integrate both Genesis and separation and Kabbalistic intersection, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, what can I say? Well, I, I don't know how much, I, I don't know what to say about that exactly. I mean, the, the Kabbalistic system is clearly based on a kind of dialectical logic of, you know, if you could say thesis, antithesis, synthesis, made more complicated, as I think I showed you already last week, by the notion of the fractal structure of each one of those operations, um, it's clear that, divide, div, that uh, the di dividing and separation and so forth is a central to the creation narrative of Genesis. Um, I just, I feel like the Kabbalistic material is just more indebted to, to logic and so forth and less trying to make sense of the biblical narrative per se. I think the, the mythologomena of the tree is important in, in the Genesis account for them. They're interested in the fact that it was seven days. They're interested in the tree. 
Um, they're interested in the utterances, uh, but, that, but that their system of, of uh, you know, the dialectical operation of the system, I think it's, I don't know, I, I don't see it as being closely engaged with, with the, the text of Genesis on, on, on differenti differentiating between the upper waters and the lower waters and so forth. There's no doubt that when Kabbalists read those verses, they use the spherotic system and its, and, and its thesis antithesis model to, to explain those passages. I just have my <coughs> doubts that they, that they explain the genesis or the emergence of this dialectical way of thinking that you see playing itself out in the, in the visualizations. Sure. Hmm. Interesting question. This is, yeah, it's come up a, a, a few times in different ways. How, how much free play is there here to, to be creative? Are we going to get new insights or are we just going to get you know, the official authoritative truth based on the Kabbalah? So one of the things I tried to bring out in, in my intro to Kabbalah, I think it was, they're all sort of a little bit blending together in my brain, um, was that there were people who taught Kabbalah who were of the opinion that it's not, um, it's not uh, an arena for creativity and the creation of, of novel insights, but that it, it, it's passing down secrets that either you got them or you don't. But I think I, I, I also tried to emphasize that that was an opinion that didn't really win historically. What, what won out in, in practice was a much um, more open and creative approach to Kabbalistic speculation. And that, and that's, and that, and that means that people were given a, um, people were given, you might say, a rules of the game, but then given the freedom to play with those rules like anybody would play with the rules of any game and the geniuses at the game will sometimes maybe even bend the rules or look beyond the rules or you know make you but but basically it's a kind of structured play within a within a framework that creates uh, you know uh, a kind of uh, coherence so I think that once you had the framework in place there was a tremendous amount of freedom to generate novel insights. One of the interesting things about the visualizations and the diagrams is that when you, when you put something out there in a diagram, a diagram isn't l linear in the same way that some kind of, if I write a book, Introduction to Kabbalah, and I say, well, when I write it, you have to read word for word, sentence after sentence, and paragraph after paragraph, and chapter after chapter, and you know how to read from beginning to end, that's how I say it. But if I create a kind of map, and I don't tell you, it's not numbered, I just put it out there, this is the map, and, and you're, you're exploring the map, you are free to make all kinds of connections, just like if, I, if you ask me for directions to go somewhere, I could just tell you, go from here to there, but if I give you the map, you might say, oh, well, there's a scenic route over here, I'm gonna explore that this time, or I'm gonna take it, 
come and take the toll road and go back. Whatever it is, the, the, the visualizations actually create opportunities for, uh, for free play as well. That are, and not just free play, but, but novel insights about things that correspond and relate that even the person who made the map might not have taken into consideration. So um, a lot of times people think there's a contradiction between mnemonics and, crea and creativity, like using an image to remember and being creative, but it's a false dichotomy. When people use images to remember things, they're not just trying to remember a script so that they can repeat it, you know, like uh, regurgitate it. They're trying to remember a kind of constellation of, of ideas and thoughts and phrases and and elements that they can then recombine creatively. Um, so uh, I, think th I think when you get to the, the, the end of this answer, it's simply, yes, Kabbalah is a creative endeavor and, and Kabbalistic literature is a literature of, uh, of astounding variety and creativity. Everybody who wrote a book wrote their book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, just to wrap it up with uh, two quick things. I got yelled at on Saturday because someone said, Who the heck am I to ask questions? How do I get to ask questions? They don't. I have to see the eye. I should have just cut. I actually let them answer a question, which I thought was actually relatively irrelevant. It was mine. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> and I should have cut them off. So, but I'm not, and I said, Because it's not a democracy. That's right, Gary. That is exactly what you did. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. But, uh, so here, here's a quick thing. What do you call that art with the, uh, with the Kabbalah? Is it not just, not the sphere, circle, but a square with things all? There's a concentric circles in the tree. It's a square with the letters. Yeah, but I call the squares, it looks square, but... What do like people call, because there must be a name for that. Oh, there isn't, there, it doesn't have its own. Its own name? No, just um, they call it, well, they, it, in general, they call it the Sfirot as Igulim, circles, the circles model. It's a Even if it's squared yeah. off? Yes. Yeah, they're not really, they're just kind of squared, but everybody knows that it's, those squares are circles. So maybe you'll share that if people want a copy of that. Oh, I have tons. Just tell me what century you want. want I'll give you 13th century is one price. Yes. I won't. I'm not touching it. That's right. What about the Christians? When did they stop doing Are they still doing it? No, that's true. This. No. Well, look, it's true that today you have, you have widespread interest in Kabbalah amongst non Jews. But to say that there's a Christian. Uh, group that's interested in it. I'm not aware currently of a Christian group that's. Well, this this is, to my mind, this is is like the high point of Christian interest in Kabbalah and also its swan song. When you have in the late 17th century Henry Moore and Isaac Newton 
expressing interest in Kabbalah, but then expressing dis disillusionment with Kabbalah as having the potential of offering real answers to the questions that were driving their research, you see that it's waning. Now, as opposed, in the 15th and 16th centuries, there are popes that are interested in this material, right? There are popes. In the 17th century, it's, it's, it's not popes anymore. It's private citizens, sometimes with backing of rich, uh, you know, uh, princes like the like the prince of Sulzbach, who supported this enterprise, right? But but this is is no longer an official church program. But you think it's because it got too complicated? I I think it's just because science turned the page. In other words, this is interesting until we get to the point in the 17th century where even Newton and Kepler walk away from some of their earlier approaches to the material that were, you know, Kepler's early work is, shows repeated attempts to work with the platonic solids and the perfect, perfect forms of God, you know, and then he, he ex gradually accepts that the universe isn't perfect like that. So in other words, in the 17th century, scientists move away from this kind of idealism to the messiness of reality a little bit. And, and Kabbalah is very connected to, the to, to that more platonic notion of there being perfect forms that you could logically arrive at you know, because everyone would agree that the circle is perfect and you know, the forms all into, you know, work perfectly and God made everything like this. So when science moves away from it, and you have scholars saying, well, you know, the, the fact is the Zo your, your, you thought the Zohar was, was, was uh, go, going back to pre-Christian uh, times or whatever. It was written in the 13th century. You have people also assailing the antiquity of the Kabbalah. There are too many forces at play beginning around 1700 for this to continue being a major cultural force. He's not going to go to church today and have someone pull out a Kabbalistic text that he made. I don't think so. I don't think so. Madonna, but she's not part of an organized church. Well, I don't know what her priest has to say about that. The Pope has to say something about The Pope. He did? Yeah, but I want to wrap it up with the following because you're going to be around for questions. Sure enough.